2021 on the Engage and Equip podcast, where we are still engaging with culture and equipping the local church in faith and ministry. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, one of the communication staff here at High Point Church. If you're new to us, we have been doing an Ask Me Anything time at the end of our Sunday services, where we can ask the preacher questions both related to and unrelated to the sermon. We don't normally finish getting to all the questions in that time, so we try to answer the rest of them here in these episodes on the Engage and Equip podcast. Today, Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, and Nicole Kyle, our music and worship arts director, are going to answer many questions compiled from the past few weeks because we haven't done one of these episodes in a little while. If you have more AMA questions for Nick, all you have to do is email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. We'd also love to have you join us for future AMAs on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Engage and Quit podcast. I am here. My name is Nicole Kyle. I'm here with Nick Gibson, and uh, we're doing uh, one of our AMA episodes, Ask Me Anything. We have um, a lot of questions because we haven't done this since we have questions in here from December 20th. So um, we'll be working through these. Um, there, Yeah, hopefully this is um, a helpful episode for you. And I, some of these questions are probably things that multiple people are wondering. So some of them are related to sermons. Some of them are not. We'll try to do our best to reference what the point of the sermon was if if it's related to a sermon. Um, yeah, and hopefully this is helpful. So I'm going to start, Nick, with a handful of questions that I have deemed less related to a sermon. Sometimes, sometimes they still yeah. were meant to be, but I'm going to... Go with that. Yeah, let's, let's try to keep our listeners hanging on with these questions. Yeah. Um, okay, so this first one says, um, for those who struggle with perfectionism that isn't grounded in biblical princes, principles, what pastoral advice can you give in fighting that perfectionism? Um, so when I counsel people in person for this, I, I tailor it. So there's a number of different ways to do this. So... One is just understanding that the Hebrew concept of perfection is completeness, not the the best of all possible things that could be imagined. So, you know, an apple that you can eat is a perfect apple in the Hebrew sense. It's whole, complete, mature. Um, It's the Greek idea of perfection that's like the best of all possible conceptions. Mm -hmm. And so, once you recognize that, you're just looking. You're just looking to be whole. You're just looking to be truthfully and honestly there and be who you're called to be. So, one is get your idea of perfection right. The second is you really have to understand the creation creator distinction, right? I was talking to somebody today and she's like, you know, I just struggle with perfectionism because, and and part of it was, is there's this kind of dichotomy between the fact that you're made in God's image and therefore like God himself. And you are a piddly tiny little creature that can die if your heart stops beating for a minute. Right. And it's really easy to get caught up in the, in the dignity of being made in, in God's image and lose the, um, the sort of your the sort of circumspect attitude towards the boundary around your capacity as a limited embodied human creature. Mm-hmm. And so part of this is understanding from a Christian perspective, your creatureliness and yeah. the divine image and how those interact inside of you. Right. Cause if you don't understand your creatureliness, you easily get a Messiah, a God complex Yeah, because you are in the image of God and you are made to be like God in certain ways. And if you don't recognize that you are also a creation and a creature, uh, you get kind of out of whack. So under- yeah. understanding that, like that gets at things like not being a workaholic, letting yourself rest, 
um, recognizing that God is not a taskmaster that's that's trying to um, run you to death like an Egyptian slave, you know, in the book of Exodus or something like that. Sure. I think that's helpful. I also think your justification is helpful, understanding that what makes you worthwhile is the death and resurrection of Christ and your union with him and not anything you do. Uh, yeah. Most people who struggle with perfectionism are either trying to prove themselves to God, which you can't do, or they don't really believe in Christ's justification. They believe that their worthwhileness is based in something else Yeah, that's fleshly and worldly, and they're still trying to prove themselves out of the flesh to the world rather than belonging to Christ and hiding oneself in him. And in that sense, it's the message of the gospel itself. You know, I, totally. So um, I think we're going to get a question later about like, what does it mean to take up your cross and follow Jesus every day? And that's part of what this is. Like every day you have to realize where in your core self or your core needs as a human being is this longing for perfection coming from? Mm-hmm. And then you have to medicate that or or connect that with the with the with Jesus Himself. Yeah, in His death and in His resurrection. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll, we can get a little more specific about that. But there's like yeah, specific good. work that has to be done there, and I I can't go through all human possibilities. You know? Totally. Yeah, I think that you know something I've noticed maybe more lately is that for so many of these sorts of questions that we've been talking about in AMA and after sermons and the application of these different sermons, there are just so many different possible outcomes of it. And, and some of what it requires in following Jesus is to do the work of sorting out what it is for you. Like what, what it looks like for one person to struggle with perfectionism is going to be different for the other person. And we have to do the work of trying to sort out which piece of that it, it is for us personally. And, and that takes effort. Yeah. Like you've, you've got to put in mm-hmm. some of that effort. You can't just, yeah. it's not, one yeah, vice, I, that's all. Yeah. Just this, this last week, cause I read a bunch of stuff in Proverbs this last week um, surrounding the vice, like quarrelsomeness and all that kind of stuff that's in discussed there a lot. Yeah. And it, it just dawned on me again, how big the pursuit of wisdom and growing wise mm-hmm. is central to the biblical character. Yeah. And, um, and, and the greatness of God, like uh, one of the, one of the doxologies, I think it's in Romans, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Yeah. And like, and he goes on about God's judgments beyond, are beyond searching out. He's, God is so wise. And because of his wisdom, he reigns gloriously. And for human beings like ourselves, like this is why the pursuit of wisdom is such a big deal. We're never going to be as wise as God, but there's so much wisdom God can give us for us and for others. Yeah. And um, where you lack wisdom, you should pursue it. Yeah. Either in the scriptures or from the wise. Yeah. Um, okay. That's helpful. I think in like moving for all these next questions, because for so many of them, that's going to be the case. So, mm-hmm. okay. Next question. What do you believe happens to people who never hear the gospel? Mm-hmm. So um, let me just try to st- stick to what I think Christian theology teaches relative to the Christian scriptures. Yeah. Um, so there's essentially three views on, I'm assuming the question is what happens after these people die relative to judgment, heaven, hell, God's judgment. I think that's yeah. what the question is getting at. So there's three views. They're, they're normally termed in theology, restrictivism, middle knowledge, and sometimes called inclusivism is the third one. So restrictivism is you have to explicitly believe in Jesus by name, confessing your sins and believing him as Lord to be saved. If that does not happen in your earthly life, then you are damned because we're already self-condemned in sin. We're all already damned. The question is, do we get saved out of that position? If we don't, then we remain in the position of condemnation. Um, And so that's where you end up. Um, Middle knowledge is the view that God foreknows who would believe in him in any possible world in which a person had the possibility of believing in him. 
And then God has people born at certain times in places in which those who would believe do get a chance to hear and believe. Now, that's a really nice view because that means anybody who didn't ever hear the gospel in their lifetime, God foreknew would never believe the gospel in any lifetime had they heard it. And so they didn't miss out. The sure. problem is, is that what that means is, is that you're, you have to live on the assumption that everybody who doesn't hear the gospel wouldn't have believed. And that can seem presumptuous. Right? Yeah. So that's middle knowledge is more of a thought experiment for restrictivism, right? Basically it says it's a way of thinking that God has given everybody the chance to be saved who would want to be saved, even though he did not give many, many humans the chance to be saved. Does that make sense? So um, I won't get into that more right now. The third view, inclusivism, or or what um, John Wesley called a, a salvation by by um, dispensations, is this is the idea that basically um, the dynamic by which we're saved is not believing in the name of Jesus. It is that now, but throughout salvation history, salvation has been um, based in people willing to believe God and to trust His promises, whatever those promises are. So there's an amount of revelation everybody has. It's different for every human being. And um, responding in faith is how God justifies or or counts somebody just so that they can be saved. So, for example, in early the early chapters of Genesis, there's a character named Enoch, and he calls on the name of the Lord, right? It says in his days that people started calling on the name of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? We have no idea. It just means that they engaged in worship. They were like, they knew something about God's name, and they they called on his name, right? And and those people are counted as righteous and saved. And Enoch actually goes up, it says, and there's no reference to him ever dying. And, and most people believe he didn't physically die. Like God called him up to heaven, right? So, and then you get to um, to the book of, to, well, well, there's other examples, but let's go to Abraham. In, in it, the story of Abraham, God tells him he's going to have a son. It says that he believes God and God credits it to him as righteousness. So because Abraham believes the promise that God was going to give him a son, then God gives him righteousness. So for Abraham, what would be believing in Jesus for us yeah. was believe the promise, I'll give you a son. Yeah. For Abraham. Does that make sense? Yep. What Wesley argued in his sermon on faith, he, he, in, he has lots of Wesley's sermon, one, one of them called on faith. He basically says there are different what he called dispensations or, or time periods or givings of knowledge. And in them, the dynamic of salvation is different. So what Enoch had to do to be saved is different than what Abraham had to do to be saved, which maybe was different than what people after Moses had to do to be saved, mm. which was different than, right, maybe yeah. in the time of Isaiah, which was different in the time of Christ. Sure. So. So through time, diachronically, we know that there are different bases of salvation, but the same dynamic of salvation in every case. Romans 4 says, uh-huh. right, don't you realize that Abraham was saved the same way you are, right? But even though Abraham never believed in Jesus, right, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Believing God in the New Testament is to believe in his Christ. Does that make sense? Well, however, what Wesley speculated was, if that's true diachronically through time, is that true like diageographically through geography in places and in times where sure. Christ has not been heard. So here's one thought experiment. If you, let's say you lived in Mongolia at 33 AD. Okay. So Jesus five days earlier had died and risen from the dead. You're 86 years old in Mongolia, right? And you die. Is God going to judge you because you didn't believe in Jesus by name? Or is God going to judge you because you weren't thankful towards the creator that you should have known exist and you didn't give homage and thankfulness to him? Mm-hmm. Right? If you were a Jew in Turkey when Jesus died and rose from the dead, 
will God condemn you because you didn't believe in Jesus by name? Right. Because it happened. Technically, it's already happened, right? right? Or would he judge you as a Jew? Did you respond in faith to the covenant of Abraham in a relationship to the law of Moses? Did you believe God's promise that way? And if so, does God credit righteousness? So the view that is sometimes called Christian inclusivism, but it's not universalism, is the view that God credits the righteousness of Christ. We know that righteousness now comes from the death and resurrection of Christ, Mm -hmm. but God credits that on the basis of people believing God's promise on the basis of whatever amount of revelation they have received. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. That would mean that everybody in the world is not only self-condemned because of their sins, but they also have a capacity to believe the amount of revelation that they have access to and so could be saved, right? Now, people then say, well, the problem with that view is, A, it's never explicitly said in the Bible, though you know, the, the argument I just made is kind of a biblical argument. It's just a biblical theology argument rather than a systematic theology argument. Sure. But, the, but people sometimes say, you know, the biggest problem with that functionally is um, – it really like why be a missionary? You know what I mean? Like right. if everybody has access to salvation, that's what even I if they've thinking. never heard, uh-huh. why would you like give your whole life to do that? Why would you go and be like eaten by cannibals or whatever? You know what right. I mean? And the answer to that question, I think, is still pretty biblically clear. It's that very, very few people will be saved that way. Yeah. Without the proclamation of the gospel to condemn us, accuse us, and then offer us God's gracious salvation by the word that is preached. Very few people will, in just conscience alone, face the truth and believe it, mm-hmm. right? That's why Jesus had to come to, to speak to us, not just die for us, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, so I think that if you believe – so I'll put it in numerical terms, though, of course, these are completely made up, right? Sure. You might imagine that 1% of people could get saved by conscience, by looking out – Understanding whatever amount of revelation there is in front of them and trusting the God who they believe made it and therefore are credited with righteousness, as opposed to, let's say, 30% of people, mm-hmm. if they heard the gospel, they would believe. That it's it's a massive multiplier yeah. that can happen when people hear the message of the gospel preached. And so it's worth giving our lives for, just as it was worth it to Jesus to come and be humiliated and murdered and to rise from the yeah. dead and to give his life for it. So I, I think that if you understand the weakness of that include Christian inclusivistic view that it, it doesn't say like a lot of people are going to be saved or that anything like all the elect are going to be saved or, and the other thing is just, it gets back to, are you going to obey Jesus or not? Mm-hmm. Right? Like um, I don't think I would go to the ends of the earth and give up everything in order for other people to be saved. I think I would do it to please Jesus. Yeah. But I don't think I love anybody enough to do that. Um, but I think, but I think I would do it because of Jesus, because he loves them and therefore they're worth it. Sure. You know, and hopefully that'll teach me to value people like I should. Yeah. So anyway, I know that's a little bit long, but that's the sort of like Christian views. And I think you can defend all of them from the scriptures. If I had to pick one from the scriptures, I would say the first one, restrictivism is the most obviously true. Sure. Um, But I think because of what I said, I think a certain form of inclusivism is true. I just think we should be very pessimistic about, what it can accomplish. Yeah, yeah. I think very few people will come to Jesus that way, to God yeah. that way. Um, okay, so I want to ask a, a related question next, which is, what do you think of the idea that people will get a second chance to repent after death? I think that in reading the scriptures, we're not given any hope of that. And so the, what I normally counsel people is – um. I would not encourage anybody to give anybody who is living hope that that, that can happen. Be. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so not take absolute, not to have absolute focus on the fact that you need to believe now. Yeah. Um, in the book of Hebrews, it says, um, uh, about Jesus suffering, he said, um, otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. That is, Jesus would have had to die a number of times. This is a different argument he's making. But then he says, um, but now at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then it says in verse 27, and in as much as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many shall appear a second time for the salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So um, what that seems to point to is the idea that human beings live and they have the opportunity to believe and then they die. And after that death, there is judgment. Yeah. Um, and that I would not encourage anyone to insert the hope that you'll get another shot at this because yeah. human beings are fleshly procrastinators and they, they will do that. They'll be like, well, I, well, surely God will give me another chance. No, he will not. Mm-hmm. You need to believe that he will not. Mm-hmm. Now, once somebody dies and somebody asks me, do you think maybe God, like maybe there's some hope that maybe this person would have a chance in the afterlife. I'm like, look, if it doesn't change the way you deal with the living and you want to believe that, now, I'm not saying it's impossible that that could be the case. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is that in the word of God written, as God has spoken and shown himself in the scriptures and in Christ, mm-hmm. he has not given us any hope of that. So we, the living, should not operate like that's a possibility. Yeah. If after we die, we find out it's a possibility, well, great. Sure. Maybe. I, I mean, if that, but I would, I would not think that that's likely to happen. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, great. so like, for example, my father never professed faith in his life. Yeah. Heard the gospel from us a million times. And um, when he was alive, I never was like, you know what? I just need to relax because, you know, after he dies, God will give him another chance. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. But at, now that he's passed and I hope for his salvation, there's part of me that hopes that something happened that I don't know about Yeah. that made it possible for him to be saved. But I'm not going to change the way I talk to the living because I have that sentimental hope about my own father. Sure. You know, though I care about him a lot. Does that make right. sense? So. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's helpful. Okay. Um, next question. Should we call the Bible the word of God? I thought Jesus is the word of God. Yeah. So in the scriptures, um, the scriptures or some part of the Bible that is the word of God is referred to as God's word. Right. And then, but then also um, Jesus is called the word of God. Right. And so what a, what a lot of people have done to try to clearly distinguish these is when they write when they write word of God re- relating to Jesus, they capitalize the W. And when they um, speak about the Bible, they do a lowercase. Or when, when I talk about the Bible being the word of God, usually I add the word written, right? Jesus is the word of God incarnate in flesh. And the Bible is the word of God written. Mm-hmm. You did that in the and, last question. <laughs> yeah. And so I do think it's right to speak of the Bible as the word of God written. Or the word, I think you can say the word of God. I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, people have gotten away from that now because it sound it has a fundamentalist feel to it, mm-hmm. and people don't don't like how it feels to say the word of God. Sure, it feels like um, when you're talking to a skeptic that you're like just assuming the Bible is the word of God, and so yeah. they they better just believe it or they're stupid. Yeah, and then they think you're some kind of dumb country bumpkin fundamentalist right. because yeah. you say the word of God, and they expect you to be more su- signal that you're more sophisticated by, by that by saying you know the scriptures say or like. The Yahwist scriptures of the Old Testament say blah, 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 blah. You mm-hmm. know, so that you sound really like educated. Yeah. 
but biblically speaking, and in relationship to the apostles in the in the church fathers, they called the Bible the Word of God all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, they normally just said the scriptures, mm-hmm. but by, by that they meant the, the writings, which right. are the word. The reason yeah. why they matter is because of the Word of God. You know, yeah. so they refer to them as infallible and all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So I think you can. I think you should. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. Okay, this is the last one, and we're not really going to talk a ton about it, but someone wrote in, you had, you did an illustration, you brought in a bunch of axes, you talked about cutting down trees with your axes. This person wanted to understand a little bit more about how your Swedish axe was better than your chainsaw was kind of a complicated question. They sent yeah. in a graph that it looks like they made. It was very impressive. <laughs> yeah, we're just giving this question a shout out, really, yeah, because we of really the, are. Yeah. the math graph that the person made for us. But what I actually said in the sermon, in terms of that, that X being faster than my chainsaw, is that I could process and limb a canopy of a tree, which is when you cut off branches that are less than three inches, all the stuff that turns into brush. So sure. when, I, when I'm cutting through stuff that's four inches and thicker, then mm-hmm. yes, a chainsaw is much faster. Yeah. But when you're just cutting off limbs and you, it's just one swing of an axe and it just slices it off, that is actually considerably faster than using a chainsaw and considerably safer too. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it's very easy to hold the axe in one hand when you're moving the brush all around because mm-hmm. you just slice right through it, then you move it with your free hand. Mm-hmm. Whereas with a chainsaw, you don't really have a free hand yeah. if you're going to be really safe. Yeah. So that's that's all I meant. All right. So we're going to move on to um, some questions that are at least more poignantly more related recent. to this sermon. Well, not necessarily more recent. So yeah, we're gonna one of these go back to Mike's last sermon. Yeah. It's so, been like three weeks. Yeah. So we're gonna um we're gonna go through the the oldest questions and we'll end with the most recent questions. So the first one is from when Mike preached. This is back before Christmas. We were going through a series, The Weight and the Hope. And Mike preached a sermon on what I think it was called the school of waiting, but just what does it look like to wait for God to move? And so this question is related to that. This person writes, um, and this was for Mike, but he did not um, get to do one of these episodes. So Nick, you can answer just in his place. What would you Great. say to someone that you're trying to encourage to have the confidence to believe that God is sovereign over the pain and hardship that they're experiencing? Man, this is another one of those deals where like, I need to have the person in front of me and I need to be asking them specific questions. Um, generally speaking, what I would tell somebody is that um, pain tends to put you in an altered state of consciousness yeah. that creates a tunnel vision that justifies your own experiences. Right When you're in pain, you don't want somebody telling you you're not in pain. Mm-hmm. The most important thing when you're in pain is to know you're in pain. Yeah. Right? Because you have to admit that. Right? So- if you believe in the sovereignty of God in such a way as to like undermine that or something, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Right. And so I think there's two things. One is I would say it's, it's fine and it's good. And it's, and it's actually proper to be honest about your pain and the hardship you're experiencing. And you need to believe in God's sovereignty in a way that recognizes the brokenness of creation and the curse under which we live so that mm-hmm. there isn't a, a artificial split between the pain you're suffering and what you believe God should be doing for you. Right. Cause then you're just asking somebody to like in their mind, what is that? It's like, co- no, that isn't really cognitive dissonance, but you're asking them to like try and believe things that feel incompatible. If you say, no, your pain's not real. Well, no, it is. But mm-hmm. then if you just can't believe in a, a situation where God could still be sovereign in the midst of real pain, I mean, that's, that's just asking them to do something impossible then. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's not really, it's not really trying to, to say that you believe something you don't usually is not productive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's also in some ways dishonest. If you say you believe something you really don't believe. And so, yeah, I think you need to be honest about your pain, but you also need to pain tends to make you indulgent in your thinking. And so you need to not, not fall into that. Yeah. So you need to, because that's a different kind of dishonesty. So pain, you know, there's the, there's the religious answer, which is trust God, you know, like, um, and minimize your pain. Well, that's not really honest because you're now you're being dishonest about your pain. Mm-hmm. But then if in your pain, you're like, you know, well, God should be like this. And I can't believe God, right? Yeah. Now you're allowing sentimentalism to enter in mm-hmm. and justify yourself and condemn God, right? Which yeah. is a different dishonesty, right? Mm-hmm. Now what you're doing is you're you're letting your pain be the truth. Yeah. And that's not honest either. Yeah. And so, yeah, you have to, you, I would say that you need to fight for the tension between mm-hmm. being honest with your real experience, what it means like to live under the curse. And then be honest with the real sovereignty of God over all pain and suffering. And then look to Christ, the one who is the gift of the sovereign one who suffered and died. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you see in Christ the suffering God, you know that God's sovereign relationship over the curse is complicated enough that his own son suffered a humiliating death to redeem us. Yeah. And that is what we're suffering through mm-hmm. to our own redemption. So yeah. I think that that's important to understand, yeah. you know, and just and hold hold those things together. Mm-hmm. And get a lot of encouragement from the outside. Mm-hmm. You know, you need people encouraging you. Yeah. Um, okay. So the next couple of questions are going to move on to the next sermon, which was, um, it was kind of just a, a one-off sermon that you did, but it was focusing on temperance. Mm-hmm. This first and right. Which is not, not drinking alcohol, but right. temperance is the ability to control you, to be tempered, yeah. to have the right kind of strength. Yeah. So this first person writes, how can we as individuals, as family units, as a church body, apply this message to allow for reflection and action-oriented growth, knowing that there is hard work to do? Um, Sometimes I think it's very easy in a, in our desire to be spiritual, to overcomplicate things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when God tells us to do something, we should try to study it, to understand it as much as we can. Mm-hmm. What is God saying? How does that relate to human nature? Right. To understand it. And then we have to try to do it. Yeah. And when we're able to do it, we worship God and thank him without boasting. And when we fail, we, we repent. We tell him we're sorry that we failed again. We try to understand why it happened, make whatever restitution we can. And then we try again. Yeah. And it is through failing in the right direction, through um, gracious striving, through you know trying to actually do what we think God wants done, yeah. um, and then growing in wisdom around it in these experiences as we like both study and experience that we grow. And um, there is no magic, like you know, like to, to ask the ask the question, like you know, how do how do we as individuals you know apply this message? Now, when the person says, as a church body, apply the message, I think that that there's a couple things. I, th- I think that we need to apologize to each other explicitly a lot more than we do. Yeah. I, there's, there's three areas of worship that I think people really need to excel. One is the direct adoration of God. The second is the direct edification of others. I can see the work of God in you. 
And third is the worship of confession and repentance, where God is so valuable, I will tell you I did you wrong. Mm-hmm. I did God wrong and I did you wrong. Mm-hmm. And God and you are too important for me not to do that. Yeah. And I think as we do those, that those three acts of actual adoring and caring for and valuing the right things begins to produce temperance in us. Yeah. Especially if you find yourself humiliated with your apologies a lot because you just you don't control your mouth or your behavior. Yeah. Those that humiliation begins to work you. your flesh in the right direction. Yeah. To get you to control yourself. Now that's not the that doesn't fix things in the long run because you're still using the flesh to kill the flesh. Right. But you're doing it for the right reason in the right way. You are doing the work of the spirit to mortify the flesh and doing it. So there is good that comes from it. Yeah. Um so I, I would say one thing is we should apologize. That happened like to my, my wife. She had had a falling out with a couple of girlfriends. She had taken five or six actions to try to write things with both of them. It just didn't work. And she just felt like it it wasn't going anywhere. And then one of the women that she kind of had this falling out with just came up to her. And she didn't apologize really specifically for what happened. It was at, at this point months ago, if not more than a year ago. Yeah. But she's like, I didn't handle that well. I just, I, I, I just didn't handle it well. I didn't, I yeah. didn't respond to you. Well. I didn't handle it well. And I'm really sorry. Are we okay? Now that's not a great apology, yeah. but man, that's something. That's what we yeah. call an olive branch. You know, it's yeah. something. Yeah. And my wife was like, I was happy with that. Yeah. I was happy with that for her to acknowledge that and for us to have that reconciliation. So yeah. I think that, um, I think that will help lead to temperance as well as unity, as well as a bunch of other good things. Yeah. Tempo. I also, I also think, let me say one more thing. I also think just shutting up. <laughs> yeah. Right. The scripture says where, where the words are many, sin is not absent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very hard to tame the tongue. It's very hard to have your mouth moving and not sin with it. And just shutting up and saying less and listening more and asking intelligent questions and considering things and just, just saying less that doesn't need to be said. Yeah. Um, is could be a big thing. Yeah. I was thinking about this recently because, um, a friend of mine was asking a question about like, you know, what are ways that you're, you're really trying to understand people who have different opinions from you. And this was this past week after the things that were happening in DC. And she said, um, like, what are ways that you're trying to really like try to maintain the relationships that you have with people who disagree with you. And I was thinking about it and I, I just thought, man, the number of times that I have regretted what I've said because I just spoke quickly and I was more reactive than anything else. Like I, that has led to mostly just problems. It's not often that our first reactions are untainted or very clear. And I think it's important to have people with whom we can process those things. But a lot of times waiting, I I mean, that's something I feel like I've learned a lot from you that you've said a lot, especially in really contentious moments, culturally, that like, we've got to wait for a lot of stuff to see what shakes out and what settles. And I mean, like, especially the more removed we are from a situation. And, and I think that's something that right now when everyone feels like, well, I've got a, I've got a Twitter account or I've got an Instagram account and that's supposed to be where I, like, I must give my PR response to everything. Well, right. that can get you into Espe- Especially if you believe that silence is violence. Yeah. If you believe that you must say something or you're a bad person. Right. Um, it's just, it's a very, very unchristian idea. Now, now, you know, with all these bad sayings, there, are, there is some truth in them. Like right. it, there are, there are moments yeah. where you should speak and it's, you need to try to figure out when those are. And in those moments you should speak. Right. Um, uh, but cowering to somebody else, bullying you into speaking because they want to co-opt your voice and tell you, you have to speak for them. Yeah. Um, I, I would not do that. 
I would never do that because I mean, that that's just, I mean, the reason I think the silence and violence thing is such a terrible thing to be saying publicly is because I think that it's an attempt to bully and intimidate people into speaking, which is exactly the kind of um, supremacy of power those folks are trying to fight. Yeah. And to act that way is to become like your oppressor, which is always the danger of the oppressed. The always the danger of the oppressed is the minute you have any power, you become worse than your oppressor. And there's just scads of examples throughout human history of that, of that happening. I think it's very dangerous. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's important to recognize that in, in James 3.1, before um, James gets into a bunch of stuff about taming the tongue, he says, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Yeah. Like the Bible, Bible says to be a talker in the church. To be a teacher, to be a preacher, to to have a word ministry is to bear a burden and a burden of stricter judgment. It's not something that we should presume to. And he says, literally, not many of us should, should be talkers. Mm-hmm. And so in, in a world where everybody wants to be a talker and everybody wants to be an influencer, um, if you want to be a talker, you don't get it and you shouldn't be one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's only when you don't want to be one. Yeah. Be, that you it, and not just because you you don't like the attention, but because you realize the gravity of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you realize that people listen to what you say. Yeah, and that's terrifying. Yeah, and it's so easy to guide them wrong. It's so easy to be wrong. It's like <laughs> when you get en- enough of a sense of gravity that you wish that you could retire out to the fields and just plow, you know, and like never say another public word the rest of your life. Yeah. Um. Then you might be qualified, yeah. right? And so, uh, I I'd really I I really think Christians need to think a lot more about our speech yeah, and temperance and moderation and modesty and choosing edification over criticism yeah. and recognizing how little we know about very complicated human dynamics. And yeah. I was going to, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I was going to bring that up because um, we'll get into this more. We're going to do another episode um, for the podcast about just cutting room floor episode about this past sermon from this morning. But um, this morning you mentioned something that can easily hurt unity is that we take all or nothing views on very complex issues. And, um, what you just said about speech like that, if that to me feels like a really helpful example of sometimes how that plays out sometimes that like, and what you talked about at the beginning of this episode, that we have to pursue wisdom because we have to be able to know to just how to discern in real time, what to do and how to move forward. And so complex issues aren't going to have simple solutions. We have to be able to try and discern through the power of the spirit what we need to do. And, and that's, that has to be part of growth as Christians. So, um, okay, let's move to the next question. Um, this person writes in second Samuel eight, after David's victories, it mentions in verse 18 and David's sons were priests. There is no indication of God's anger. Like there is with King Uzziah where God immediately acted. Does priest here mean they were like Levitical priests. You know, I looked this up the other week when this question first came up. Yeah. And, um, and I don't remember now. Um, I, I can't say a couple things about it. Um, Cause I remember I I, I, like, to answer this question and I, forgot. yeah, because yeah, it was a couple weeks ago. Right. <laughs> so if you, if you look at the different translations of this, right. Um, in the ESV, it says David's sons were priests. And the New American Standards, it says David's sons were chief ministers. And in the NIV, in verse 18, it says Daniel David's sons were royal advisors. Now, um, in the Hebrew, it is Kohanim. So um, the, the Hebrew word Kohen. So if you know a lot of Jewish people, some have the last name Kohen, oh, yeah, yeah. right? 
that's the Hebrew word for priest, right? It means priest. Uh-huh. Okay. So it so generically Kohen does mean priest. And um usually the reference is to the Levitical priest or the high priest. So it's reasonable to translate that high priest or priests. His sons were priests. Um I don't I mean I don't know the answer to that question. I don't want to, I don't want to just blow it off and say, well, you know, that can't mean anything. Yeah. Right. Um, it says the sons of David were Kohanim, right? So can that mean Royal advisors or chief ministers or something like that? I don't, I don't know. I have to, I would have to do a word study on that that I haven't sure. done yet. Um, however, there are, there are times in the old Testament where people do things that are wrong and God has said are wrong and they just kind of are there without comment. Yeah. So if his sons are priests, that's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the and if it's if that's added there, um, I would have to look at the context as is this the beginning of a line of things that happen where where David is allowing corruption. One of the things that is the case is David doesn't handle corruption among his sons very well, um, and it ends up leading to like very major problems as we as we go down the line. Yeah, right, because he's going to have the conflict between Amnon and and. Um, and uh, Absalom, and there's going to be murder among his sons, and so on. So we do know that that David doesn't adjudicate his sons very well, and this kind of goes back to the whole issue that the kings of Israel were not supposed to have many wives. Part of the reason you shouldn't have many wives as a king is so that your heirs are not seventy to two hundred people, yeah. half of them being young men, all of them being desirous of power, right? Right, because they're the king's sons, right? And so it is possible that David was having so many sons at this time, and he was. He was looking for places of prominence to put them that he was sticking some of the priesthood. I'm not really sure. Yeah. I doubt that because of David's apparent um, care around those kinds of things. It, it would surprise me if that was the case and that's what this first meant. But um, but either way, it, it it's it's not a biblical problem. It would be an issue of theological understanding. Did Jesus make – did David make them um, – advisors or did he did he put them into priestly positions yeah you know yeah okay we're gonna move to the next sermon which was last week so we started a new series called sustaining unity um and there were two sermons in so we're gonna start with questions after last week last week the uh sermon is called unity and purity and you talked about how um these are principles that impact one another in the pursuit of unity, that purity is the limiting factor for unity, but that unity is the divide is the um, directing directing for purity. And so, um, briefly before we get to these questions, um, can you, I I heard a couple of people ask this question, so I'm just going to throw it in. Can you give a, a brief, I mean brief, because we have a lot of questions left. But what do you mean when you say that it's the limiting factor? What do you mean when you say purity is the limiting factor for unity? There is a certain faithfulness to the truth God has shown that limits unity. Right? That, that um, God wants us to be united, but there's a way in which we can be united which is unfaithful. Mm-hmm. How do you know when that is? Yeah. And it's when you don't pay attention to what God says. Yeah. When you're unwilling to stand for the truth. Yeah. That is to um, standing for the truth socially is an act of purity. Yeah. No, the truth matters as much as the people. Because, well, for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And if I'm answering briefly, I can't go yeah, into all no, that. But yeah, yeah. That like we yeah. can't just be unified with no limits on that. There has to be something that is right. 
is is yeah is I mean is limiting that basically. There there has to be a uniting principle of the right. people who gather. What is that? Right. That's the truth. That's- yeah, you can see this in in America right now, right? Like, well, right now, if you say, "What does it mean to be an American? What is Americanism? What does it mean to be American? What's what is un-American?" Right? Yeah. And people just sputter and spit on themselves trying to answer that question because there is nothing everybody agrees on. Yeah. We have no idea anymore. Right. We don't and have the we, principle. Right. And we used to. But we don't now. Mm -hmm. And that is very disconcerting because now people say, well, how do we all get along now? We're all divided. How do we find a unity? And the answer is there isn't a thing anymore. Yeah. We we got rid of all of them. And the reason we got rid of all of them was to be as inclusive as possible. (laughs) We want everybody to feel good. So we didn't want there to be any principle that made somebody feel left out in any way. Yeah. But now that's the only principle we've got and that doesn't do it. Yeah. I remember sitting in my, um, this is a a digression, but I remember sitting in my AP Gov class in high school. The first time that someone, I don't know, it was probably my teacher or a classmate, but the first time they were like two of the main like, um, virtues of being American, being an American are equality and liberty. And they're in direct tension with one another. And I just, I was sitting there like, oh my goodness, my mind is blown. Like, how are we ever going to do this? And I I mean, like, I think what you're talking about is how we're experiencing these pendulum, this pendulum swing towards equality. Mm -hmm. And we have to. I I think one of the things people don't understand though, however, is Americans define equality very different than the French. Sure. Right. Um, Fraternitas and equalitas from the French revolution was a anti-hierarchical idea, right? And in America, it wasn't because we didn't have a hierarchy. It wasn't old Europe. So everything wasn't about class. We were a bunch of ne'er-do-wells on a frontier and everybody was making their own fortune. Yeah. And so, and people say, well, not everybody, there were slaves. Well, yes, but America wasn't being defined mostly in the, in the slave colonies. It was mostly being defined in the non-slave colonies where there were indentured servants and people were starving. And th- there wasn't this like, gratified hierarchy similarly i've heard you talk about how like our understanding today of freedom is not what it meant when this country was founded either no that freedom in, in many had ways. limiting principles basically yes freedom has always had limiting principles for right. sure but also people never imagined the kind of communitarianism we we use now like for for example the um the 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 taxes on tea, for example, that started the Boston Tea Party and ultimately the American Revolution, yeah. are like an infinitesimal percentage of what we pay today. Mm-hmm. So so if if you go back to the 1800s, around the time of the Civil War, the total amount of a family would pay in federal income taxes in today's dollars, or like in 1999 dollars, sure, it was like twenty dollars. What? Yeah, that's the whole bill we paid to the federal government. Twenty dollars. Wow! Because the only thing the federal government did was basically treaties, interstate commerce, where it was actually interstate, which is not true anymore, and the military. That's it. That's all they did. And and people laughed at the federal government because it was a very tiny, tiny, tiny institution, and that was the point. It was supposed to be right. Now, mm-hmm. right, the government like takes half a GDP, and we're like, well. You know, taxes are getting a little high. You know, yeah. like uh, the founding fathers of America would have thought that we were we were slaves. They would have said half of your labor goes to the government and is transferred to other people. You're slaves, mm-hmm. right? Now, I'm not saying that means we are slaves. I'm just yeah. saying there's very different views of what freedom is yeah. in the world. That's all. I tend to agree more with the founding fathers, 
than modern communitarianisms all of Rawls. But I can't prove it's right. Um, okay, I'm gonna, so I'm going to bring us back. Is there so? Okay, that was what we were talking about: unity, purity, the limiting principle. Okay, so yes. let first question: If there is one thing you would want us to take away from the sermon, what would it be? That you can fall off the roof on either side here. Mm. You can be so focused on unity, yeah, that you destroy the context and truths by which we're meant to be unified. Or you could be so focused on purity, particularly doctrinal purity, that you divide and divide and divide, and you're not really trying to unify people the way God is trying to unify them. Mm -hmm. And so we can be fundamentally divisive, or we can be liberally unifying. And in both cases, we could destroy the real message of the gospel, that God wants to unify us in the truth of Christ. Yeah, that's good. And that that truth and purity are not in tension; <laughs> they are in union. Yeah, and that that's an important distinction because a lot of people think that they're in tension. Right. Yeah, there were there was um, when you were preaching and you were talking about how every time that we we draw the line on purity, we have to understand that it is for the ultimate unity. That's yeah. very helpful. Like that's right. That's true. That is absolutely true. That it it needs to be for the ultimate union. Yeah, God. even in cases cases of church discipline. Yeah. Even in a case where we have to throw somebody out of the church because of because we have to maintain the purity of the truth. In every case in the in the Bible where that's said, it's still for the salvation of the person that you are right. disciplining. Right. It's so that they can come back to they can they they can be with Jesus in judgment. They can finally come back in the end that they can learn the lesson they need to learn. And and then the minute somebody turns around. The apostles like receive him back, encourage him, yeah, love him. He's part of the family, yeah, right. So, so people in the world who don't understand church discipline sometimes call it shunning, yeah. But the, the concept of shunning is you can't repent your way back in, yeah. Like you're kicked out. It doesn't matter if you're sorry. You can be sorry, but you're you're out. We're all going to turn our backs on you, and you are are like ex- expulsed from this community. That's not what church discipline is. Yeah, church discipline is only for the unrepentant. Until they repent, mm. and then they're received back with open arms. Yep, those are very different things. And sometimes um, people in the world, or it's sometimes people in the church. I was going to say people in the church have, have, have trouble making that distinction. I struggle with that. Like I, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a. I think that there's a part in me that I continually have to have to kill and surrender to the Lord. Where I'm like, yeah, but where's the justice? Like, where's the mm-hmm. like? That's not fair. But I ha- like I ha- I have to surrender that. Like that that is something I yeah. struggle with. So. Okay. Um, next question. How should unity play out on a larger scale? Should the church be divided into denominations because of issues like baptism, soteriology, and complementarianism and egalitarianism? So I think the answer is yes and no. I, I think that Jesus is very clear in John 17 that he wants us to be one as he and the Father are one. Yeah. Okay. So that's the bottom line. Now, when it comes to a number of these different theological convictions, for many of them, you can't do both. Yeah. Right. So, for example, either you baptize children or you baptize people on their own profession of faith. Yeah. But you can't do both. Yeah. And so either you say both are acceptable and therefore neither is correct. Or you say this is what we do. Yeah. So, for example, in the Baptist tradition out of which High Point was originally planted – it was a it's a it's a credo Baptist church. You baptize people in their own profession of faith. Now we don't necessarily have to say that people that baptize infants are anathema and they're going to hell and that they're terrible people. But it may be that we have a different 
we, we do things differently ecclesiologically, like in how we live out the faith and praxis. So I do think that you are going to get some different churches and different practices. And having one holy and Catholic church that does everything the same, I I don't know how we get back to that. Yeah. Um, I think for at least for a while here, we're going to have churches that have to learn to love each other and be in union with each other while they have some different convictions and practices. But I think we should be periodically arguing about those differences and seeing if we can't come to a better understanding. I think I've been doing that for years with charismatics and, uh, and more and more I, I stump them on what it is we're actually arguing about, hmm. you know, sure. um, where there isn't really much disagreement. Yeah. Right. And the, dis- the places we disagree, they cannot defend from the scriptures. Hmm. And so I'm trying to like help us come to unity, both by loving them and being in union with them and also arguing with them about the purity of what we believe. Sure. So sure. I think you can do both. And you, we should, So I don't think we should get too upset about like the fact that, well, God would want us to not have any denominations. We should all be just be one. That's true. But everybody inherits the family that they've got and we have to make it better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I want to leave the church more united than when I found it. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Not necessarily more united than when Jesus founded it. Sure. Yeah. Um, okay. Next question. You made a reference to this in, in your sermon, which I'm assuming this person is asking about. They said, they said, what does glory mean in the unity between son and father being part of their glory? Um, so the word glory is closely cognate to the word for boasting, it's to recognize the greatness of something, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so when Jesus talks about the glory that the Father gave him, right? Um, so verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Um, God glorified Jesus in empowering him to be set apart to for how great he would be, right? And so the spirit descends on him. He does miracles. He is demonstrated with power to be the son of God. He's demonstrated with wisdom to be the son of God. And there's a glory on him. There's like a, a beauty, a greatness, a magnificence that's in him, right? And he's saying that, Father, you gave that to me. In, in the incarnate person of Jesus, he was glorious because yeah. the Father had made him glorious. Similarly, in the church's unity, in being one as Jesus and the Father were one, we can have a certain kind of glory about us too. And that's meant to affect the world in profound ways. Yeah. So glory just simply means like the the giving and the display of magnificence mm-hmm. of greatness. And, and that's the focus. So um, and Jesus, part of Jesus' greatness was people seeing that he was completely one with the Father. He was doing the will of God. He was teaching God's truth. He was no respecter of persons, no respecter of tradition, no respecter of men. It was him and the Father's will, and he just did it. And in that unity was his glory, mm-hmm. right? His wisdom and his power. Yeah. And similarly, to the extent we were, which we are united with God and united with each other, that same glory can be found in us in, in a different way. But in a, but it's a it's Jesus is saying it's the same sort of glory. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's the next question. This person writes, when a relationship with another believer dissolves or is broken, but you don't see them on a regular basis and you don't want to continue being friends, should you go back and resolve awkward conflict or just let it be? 
my answer is to, that we we always want to restore relationships. And so if the relationship is broken, I think that trying to restore it is good. Now, the, 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 the next question, do I invest in it as somebody who has a close friendship? I think that's a different decision. Sure. Um, but I think that I think that when relationships are dissolved or broken, and especially if you can recognize the work of the flesh, the work of worldliness, or the work of the devil in it, mm-hmm. then I think you want to work against that and seek to create restoration. Yeah. Um, yeah. In this particular case, this is partly wrapped up in um, a tragedy that happened in this questioner's family mm-hmm. and people not responding to it very well. And I always tell people who are grieving – um, losses like this to be very, very careful not to damage their relationships. And they always look at me like, how can you be so insensitive as to say something like that? And this is why, because when you're hurting and you feel like people should respond to you a certain way and they don't because they, they just, and it, it is, it is because they're wrong in some ways, oftentimes because they don't, they don't just don't get the gravity of the thing and then they don't treat it with the kind of gravity it deserves. And people really can feel that. And then it feels like they don't care. Yeah. Right. Oftentimes it is their fault. Um, sometimes also though, that when you experience a loss, you begin to engage in self-focused sentimental thinking about yourself and, and nobody can please you and everybody does things wrong and nobody's response is good enough. And, um, and you just don't have charity for people who just don't know how to handle this. Yeah. And I always tell people, um, don't do that. People, people, when somebody comes up to you and says something stupid, you just say, thank you. And you just write it off. Hmm. And um, because they're not right in the head when they're talking because they don't know how to talk to you and they're embarrassed. And you're not right in the head listening because you're grieving and you're in shock probably in some way. And you're, you're not yourself and you won't be for a year, right? If you've lost somebody. And so I just, I just tell people do not let anything destroy or hurt a relationship during this time. So for somebody for whom that's happened, I would always say, go back and try to, try to mend the fence. Yeah. Even if they're not going to be your best friend after that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, there was a time where we were, I, I think I've shared on this many times before when Scott and I had a, um, a miscarriage and there were a handful of times where people, that's not, I'm not, this is a different gravity of what this person experienced, but um, someone said something to me. I mean, I had a bunch of people say, like unhelpful, silly things. Um, Mm -hmm. but a good friend of mine, I was talking to her about it and she was like, listen, people don't know what they don't know. And it felt like an easy thing. Like that feels like a nice saying, but there's actually an economics principle. I forget the name right now, but it's like the minute you learn something, you very quickly forget what it was like not to know it. Yeah. And you just can't talk to people who don't know it. Yeah. And I yeah. I would say I battled with that for sure in different things, different experiences that I've grieved and walked through. But that one especially, um, mm-hmm. that the work of doing that is is really hard to give other people that sort of grace when you mm-hmm. are in such a pain-filled place. Yeah. It's a really, really challenging thing. And it and I being gracious when you're the hurt one. Yeah. Requires something. Yeah. Yeah. It's really but, hard. But that we're called to that. 
Like as Christians, we should not let ourselves off the hook. Well, I'm hurt. Well, you know, yeah, you're devastated <laughs> and you're still supposed to love your neighbor. When they say stupid, I mean, my, my mom struggles. I remember when my, my father passed away and people like would come to comfort her and she would be like, can you believe so-and-so said such and such? And I'm like, yes, <laughs> like I can. I've been doing this for a while. And yes, people say all kinds, like, you know, one of the classics when somebody loses a child or has a miscarriage is you, you'll, you can have other children. You'll have other children. Yeah. And people always flip out about that. Be like, I love this child. How can you minimize? And the answer is, but you can have other children. And 20 years from now, when you have them, it will dull the pain of this one and you will cherish the fact that you had other children. It's also true. It's right. It's just like you can take such offense at it and it's also true. And and like most of those things are like that. Like, you know, you, well, I guess we're just going to really have to trust God during this time. Well, how dare you say that? Because you should be saying something about my grief. But it's also true. We're going to have to just trust God during this time. Yeah. But that's also 100% true. But I, and I, so I always, yeah. I always try to encourage people to be like, you know, a lot of these, you're just taking offense. You don't have to. I th- because the statement isn't false, but it, it's insensitive. It's not a sensitive statement, right? And and I you know? think that there's something to the. I mean, yeah, I like I I I think that's true. I think that s- simultaneously, like it, as people who are to grieve with those who grieve, like we need to mm-hmm. learn how to be more sensitive as well, and know, like, yeah. am I the? Per- I think something I've learned to ask since walking through some of these things myself is, am I the person to say that in this person's life? Like, mm-hmm. do we have the collateral of a relationship where I, where I'm, I'm the person who's going to speak into their life in that way, or can I just, you know? say something yeah. with them to grieve with them. And, and I think if you're an, especially if you're an aggressive, talkative person, that's helpful. If you tend to be a coward, then it's not as helpful. So it's partly based on your temperament, I think. But yeah, I think for people who tend to talk and, and tend to just freely speak, they absolutely. Yeah. Are you the right person to say this is a very helpful thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, that's me. So that's helpful for me. <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay. This next question, I think maybe I forgot to move into the not so related to the sermon part. Cause I don't really follow this question. Yeah. But this person says Luke does not record the flight to Egypt. Matthew does where in Luke does this flight fit? Is it between Luke two thirty-eight and 39? Yeah. Or 39 and 40. I mean, it, it, it comes before he's 12 years old because he's flees in his relative infancy because the infants who are slaughtered um, at the time of the coming of the wise men or the magi um, is probably between ages one and two for Jesus. So his flight to Egypt is going to be like ages like one and a half to three and a half maybe or something like that or four or five. It's in that neighborhood. I don't know how long they were in Egypt for. It's hard to tell. So, um, so it's going to happen between the birth infancy narratives. And the and then when he obviously goes to the temple and is living in Nazareth by the time he's twelve years old, mm-hmm. but so, but nothing is said about Jesus' life in that in that interim. So there isn't there isn't a like a like a narrative timetable problem, you know. Sure. All right, we're gonna go now into questions after the sermon from this morning. So this morning um, you preached on the vices of division, mm-hmm. and um, we've got a handful of questions about that, and. Um, also just as a reminder, anyone who's listening and specifically interested in this sermon, there will be a cutting room floor episode. Maybe it's already released. I don't know. So first question, how do we practice taking up our cross daily, making Christ the center 
and dying to the desires of the flesh. Um, that sounds like the person wants a simple answer to a Life to the whole of Christian discipleship. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there's a couple of things I would say to this. I mean, I, this is a really big topic. Obviously, this is like all of Christian discipleship being summarized here. But um, the, one of the things I do is I, I, would, I would say, look for core examples in your life and in your heart that are really, really at your core. So what are you really afraid of right now? Like wake up when you wake up in the morning and you, and let's say you wake up in the morning and you start off with prayer and you just think, what, what is going to control you today? Like what fear, mm. um, what pride, what vanity, what, like, like, what are you holding on to? Right. That, that's one of the when charismatics, charismatics commonly use the metaphor of surrender. Like, what are you holding on to that you need to surrender to God, right? Mm -hmm. Usually you're holding on to it because one of your core personal needs is hanging on to this thing as a kind of salvation, mm -hmm. as its idol. And so what you have to do is you have to figure out what that is. And then you have to find that place in the core of your being. And you have to die there with Jesus and rise to life in him. You have to die to, the, die to your life in this world. And you need to turn that part of your life completely over to Jesus without reservation. When you do that, usually there'll be some kind of inhibition that you can feel that you don't want to do it a hundred percent. Sure. You want to hold something back. There's some safety valve mm -hmm. that you kind of want to hold back and you, you have to go the whole way and let that go. Whatever that inhibition is, you have to let it go. Yeah. And it's only when you uninhibitedly completely give yourself over to the Lordship of Jesus in the thing you actually fear or the pride you actually hold, or that thing related to that core belief, and you really put it under the ruler, rulership of Jesus, and you die. Because you feel like if you let Jesus handle it, you're going to end up, you're not going to get what you want. Mm -hmm. Right? And so it's a it's a kind of death. You have to die that death, psychologically speaking. That, that's, what, that's what it means spiritually to die, to take up your cross, and to follow Jesus to the crucifixion every day. And when you die to your other salvation, right, your your hope of making your life work by yourself and without Jesus, and you say, if anybody's going to make me feel right in this world, Jesus, it has to be you. You have to be king of this. Yeah. Then you can be you can enter out into your day having died and risen afresh. Yeah. Jesus is really inhabiting that place, right? You let go of that inhibition <clears throat> entirely to be free of it, right? And you then try to walk through your day, keeping in step with the spirit in that frame, that like frame of mind and heart. Mm -hmm. And then you keep resetting it. Yeah. And you have to keep resetting it until you retrain your natural self, your, your, your incarnate psychology to go along with your spiritual identity. Mm -hmm. Right. The, the grace or spirit of your new spiritual identity has to retrain nature, which is your your body, your soul, your psychology, your neurology, your all of that, right? Yeah. And that's a that's a process of what we call sanctification of transformation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, there are a couple other thoughts I have, but I'm going to save that for the cutting room floor episode. So I'm going to move on. Okay. Who are some of the public figures that you follow to know if you're applying biblical principles to current events? Um, man, I hate to divulge any of that the minute i say that some people are going to stop listening to me and some people are going to be like i knew it he agrees with me on all these things you know um so i'll, I'll say a few and i'll try to give enough of a of a nondescript version 
to offend or to offend everybody, I guess. Um, so here are a couple. Um, one person who has who has a long track record of being an evangelical Christian and try tries to work really wisely through it is a is a lawyer named David French. He works now at the Dispatch, is the media group that he's part of, and he's on a podcast with a woman named Sarah Isger, who I think is non-religious. Um, both are Harvard grad lost people and they, they just cover law stuff basically, but they, they do some other commentaries, things like that. And it's David French has a long history published in many different publications. And, um, he, uh, he's kind of anti-Trump. He's been kind of anti-Trump, but he's, but he's a, like a conservative Christian. He's kind of on that side of things. Yeah. Um, I actually really like Cornell West. Okay. Um, who I think is at Harvard now. He was at Princeton for a long time, I think. And he and Robert George do a lot of events together. Robert George is a, is a conservative Catholic um, economist um, and uh, philosopher. And Cornell West is, is a kind of a radicalist. I think he, I think he actually even calls himself a Marxist in a way. Mm. Um, he, he would be very much a black lives matter, pro black lives matter kind of person, but he does it from this like very strong Christian basis and that has a very strong emphasis on the dignity of human beings because of Christ and because of bearing the image of God. Mm -hmm. And he is very liberal, small L in the belief that he believes in speaking freely Mm -hmm. in um, being honest and in also moving towards your critics in the John Stuart Mill sense. So, so Robert George or Robbie George is like super conservative, like Republican guy, right? In the Christian sense. And West is not. I mean, he's like he's I'm sure he's a Democrat. He's kind of a Marxist, but he's a believer. And he revels in his friendship with yeah. Robert George and back and forth. And I think that that relationship is very helpful. And and so when one of the when I want to get a really good dose of like how to think about this as a as a Christian progressive. Yeah. Um Cornell West is I find him very helpful. I know there's some people who just think he's a Marxist nutbag yeah. who believes in critical race theory and but but that is not when i listen to him talk and i I listen to him in his own words in context i don't get that from him yeah i think he's very thoughtful i think i mean on some of his thinking i think he's wrong sure Mm -hmm. um but i think robert george is wrong i think david french is wrong on some stuff too like i'm just i'm trying to sort out a complicated world you know Uh so i think west is good um i like him um i like um Oh, what's his name? Robinson. Um, P- I like Peter Robinson. Peter Robinson was a speechwriter in the Reagan administration. He wrote the he wrote the line, "Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall." That was his line in the speech. Uh, and and they he fought the State Department tooth and nail to keep it in the speech. Yeah. Um, and so he he like goes back 40, 40 years in government, yeah. and has seen changes over time, and has really seen a lot. Yeah. And um, he's a conservative Roman Catholic. He has a biracial marriage. He married a Cuban woman and um, they live in California. And it's just, it's like, it's just another perspective. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I, I like that. Uh, and he interviews people and about their books in, in his podcast, Uncommon Knowledge. And it's very clearly clear. He's read every word of the book. Wow. He doesn't do like a book interview like every day. Yeah. He does like one a month. Yeah. And so he has read every word and quotes people back to them. And it's, cool. he, he reads well. And I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a bunch of others. I, I really try to get. There's there's a guy who's a teacher at a classical school in, in Texas called Christopher. Ben, his name's Christopher Benson. He was a colleague of mine, but he's a literary teacher. And there's a bunch of idiosyncrasies about him that I actually can't divulge. Mm-hmm. Um, that make him situated in a certain way. That I listen to him for certain things. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, a lot, um, I have a whole list of what I call heterodox black scholars. So, I mean, I get a lot of like BLM progressivism that comes in through the news media that I just have to pay attention to. And you don't get a contrary view within the news media. So if you want a contrary view from actual black scholars, you have to actually go look for them and find them. So I actually have a list of heterodox black scholars. I've probably had 10 or 15 people. I mentioned that I think on a podcast and I had 10 or 15 people ask me for that list. Mm. And I find these, um, these are mostly black intellectuals or educational practitioners who are black who just don't, they're not progressives and they don't believe in the main policy thrusts of the black lives matter movement though they totally believe that we should say black lives matter Mm -hmm. and um they have different education policies different economic policies and so on they don't usually believe in critical race theory and um i find their their teaching really balancing to what is constantly coming in in the general stream of the media but at the same time i just want to i want to be clear that like i read a lot of these popular things too so like um, I mean, I, I, um, I read the book, the, the new Jim Crow by, by Michelle Alexander about, um, the prison system and, and marking black men as felons. And listen, listen, I go to all kinds of st- like progressive stuff and I ask people if they, they quote that book and I ask people if they've read it Yeah. and they're like, no, I bought a copy. I mean, I'm meaning to read it. None of them have read it. I, 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 I've yet to actually bump into somebody who has read the whole thing. Yeah. Right. It's hilarious. I'm reading invisible man right now by Ra- Ralph, um, Emerson, not Emerson. I can't remember his last name right now, but it's it's strange. It's it's interesting. Um, so so like I'm also reading. Yeah, I like to read classics more than just the moment. So part of this is my belief. Paul Hebert said this in my anthropology class. Um, he, he said, um, almost nothing in the news becomes history. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, C.S. Lewis once said, before you read a second book by a living person, read a book by someone who's dead. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't situate yourself in the past, because you can't put your one foot in the future, you'll only be a creature of the present. And if you're a creature of the present, you are easily deceived. Sure. Yeah. And so part of it is get it is like reading classics. And so like in the whole like racial stuff going on in the United States, like one of the first things I did besides reading what's happening now is I tried to start reading some classics. Yeah. And I found it very grounding. Yeah. Very, very grounding. And you also find out how little people have read who are leading current civil rights movements, especially very young, young people. Mm -hmm. Like you, you, you like try to figure out if they've read any sermons by Martin Luther King or if they've just read two lines that they read on Twitter, or if they've read some of the books that everybody nods piously when you mention them, Mm -hmm. but no one's actually read them. Mm -hmm. And I find that instructive and I, and I, I think that there's a real advantage in reading, especially works people think you shouldn't read. Like people are really down on Booker T Washington because he believed black people could help themselves and, and needed to think that way about their lives. And so people really hate him. And so the first thing I did was I went and read his autobiography Yeah, because people like attacked him and I, and he was considered such a great man in his time. And I found out why. Because he was very great and he didn't believe most of the things that are ascribed to him. The, the problem is, is he was a balanced person and people in revolutionary times don't like balanced people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but. Okay. That's, that's yeah. helpful. Thanks for sharing some of this. Um, okay. Yeah. So there was a. Sorry. That, no, that's okay. I mean, I think, I think it's helpful. I, I, I just, I want people to think that I just like have this list of like 
a, a narrow group of people. Like I, it's it's fairly my my web is fairly complicated because I I think it has to be. Yeah. Be- but I don't think everybody's has to be. I feel like because I speak publicly, right? I have to be really careful and I have to like have as many feelers out as I can. And plus I have a couple other people who do this as well and they have totally different networks than me. And then I talk to them. Mm -hmm. So Mike Woodruff and Adam Mabry are those people for me. These are, there's guys who they live in different cities. They have different constituencies, constituencies in their church. They read very different things than me. They have very different pressures and social pressures around them. And then I regularly talk with them about what they're learning and how they're figuring and sorting it out. Yeah. And so then I get the help of their network and then I try to work that into my network and to create a larger understanding. But I think even if, even if like people aren't doing the sort of public speaking that you are doing and don't need to have as complicated of webs as you are, I think the principle is still a very helpful one that only reading things or only listening to people who are going to affirm you is unadvisable. Yeah. Also, I do want to give a shout out to somebody who's been very helpful for me. So Henry Sanders yeah. is an African-American leader in town here. He start, he started one of the only major media companies owned that's black owned in Madison, uh, Madison 365. Henry is busier than me yeah. um, and very well connected. Um, he can pick up his phone and talk to the CEO of the Milwaukee Bucks like right now. right? And every other week, he talks with me for an hour on Friday mornings. And we just talk about what's going on. Yeah. We talk about his family, his faith, and then about how we're dealing with what's going on in our world and what we think about it. He reads totally different stuff than me. He's in totally different circles than me. And I find it very, very helpful and enriching that he takes that time yeah. to help me. And I and I think it's really great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So these are leaders that you go to for because you trust their opinion or you want to learn from them or you just want to hear what they're thinking. A different set of leaders um, somebody asked about during the AMA this morning, they were asking about leaders in scripture who were negative examples um, of leadership. And Mm -hmm. this question is just asking who are some of those leaders that you referenced? Who are negative examples of leadership? I think that's what the question was, the negative example. Yeah. So probably some of the biggest ones in scripture would be, there's a lot in the Old Testament. A lot. All the judges, um, especially after after Deborah, I think probably are all bad, um, or for the most part. Um, Saul and Absalom. David has some bad moments, but Saul and Absalom on both sides of David are particularly bad. Um, every king of Israel, every single king of Israel, um, most of the kings of Judah. Are examples. There are a number of prophets that that's true of. There are some bad prophets and false prophets that are examples of bad leadership. Um, in the New Testament, obviously Judas is a is a pretty bad example of leadership. Yeah. Um, Peter has some bad moments, but recovers pretty well. In the pastoral epistles, there's a number of statements about um, false teachers. In in fact, Paul actually names some of them and says, "Don't listen to these people." Um, so th- there's those. There's an example. Um, so, I mean, those are some of the. Yeah. Obviously, there's obviously there's a figure in, figure in Revelation called the Antichrist, right. who's not particularly particularly good uh, in terms of leadership and bringing unity. Yep. Actually, he's pretty good at bringing unity, just the wrong kind. Right. Yeah. You know. Okay. Just a couple more questions. This one says, um, in Luke twelve fifty one, Jesus says he came to bring division. Is this what is happening today? Does not truth cause division and make the contrast between good and evil more distinct? 
John the Baptist ended up in prison for calling out the sin of a political leader and also called the political group of Pharisees a brood of vipers. Is this not something that God may want today? Yeah. Um, I think the answer is, so the question inside that question that I think the person is asking is, when Jesus says he came to bring division, he's specifically talking about believing in him. Mm-hmm. And that some people in a family will believe in him, some people won't, and it'll create division, right? Sure. However, what this person is saying is, yes, but also as Jesus declared truth, he came in conflict with political, cultural leaders, and there became there began to be conflict over his political positions on these sorts of things, i.e. John the Baptist getting killed for stepping in politically, and then Jesus ultimately getting killed on political grounds, right? Mm-hmm. So isn't it possible that this is what's happening today? And part of the question is, well, which side of things? Or both? Is it both? Yeah. Is it the Christians who are advocating for Black Lives Mattering in certain kinds of ways that are speaking up and that that's creating political strife? And there are people speaking up for freedom um, or that, that there are Christians speaking against a certain kind of instantiated conservative long-term supremacy of the incumbent, which tends to be white people. So when people say, like like I was trying to explain, one of my daughters was like, the whole idea of white supremacy is so stupid, right? And I'm like, okay, wait, wait, just hold on for a second. You do believe in incumbency supremacy, right? Like the people who are in power tend to set up rules so that they can stay in power, right? So, I mean, because most political conservatives think that we should have like term limits, for example, because people who get in the Senate like stay there forever, right? right. And so she's like, oh yeah, incumbency, yeah, incumbency. I was like, okay. So if white people had all the control, yeah. then – and you believe in incumbency supremacy and the white people were the incumbents, yeah. then ipso facto, you would have mm-hmm. – you would, you would just have – it wouldn't have to be racialized. You would just by nature have a kind of white supremacy, right? And she's like, yeah, I guess that's true. I was like, okay. So if people said basically – so if I took white off of supremacy and put it in incumbency and then I just wrote – the majority of whom happen to be white. Mm-hmm. Would you be okay with that? And she'd be like, I would be okay or with it, mm-hmm. you know? So in my mind, that's kind of how I reconcile it, that there's a group of people saying that there's been an incumbency in America and that has created problems for people who aren't in the incumbency. That's tended to fall along racial lines in that the people in the incumbency tended to be white and the people who weren't in the incumbency tended to be white and other colors or other races. And so black people tended to be majority not in the incumbency. And so that's what we mean by white supremacy. That's not just, and we should do something about it. I could see that as being speaking against the political establishment, mm-hmm. right? Then conversely, I could also see that there are some people on the, on the right side of the aisle who may have aligned themselves with a very problematic figure in president Trump, but they see a kind of progressivist totalitarian speaking down to people illiberal controlling incumbency happening in the institutions of control in America. Because if you look at our press and our universities and our politics and the politics of the people in Silicon Valley and the politics of the people that um, are the millions of employees within the government agencies of our country, they're overwhelmingly leftist Mm -hmm. in America. And that is creating a new supremacy, a new kind of incumbency and incumbency supremacy that is progressive by nature. And there are some bad things about progressivism when it gets power, like 
it tends to shut down certain views and it tends to control people's behavior. It tends to be superior and think it knows better. It has a lot of conceits, for example. Um, and when it forms a system of government that is similar to socialism, that's had very bad social experiences in the past. And so it's possible some people would stand up against that and say, we don't want to live like this. We don't want to live under that level of injustice, that falseness, that's that inhumanity, and that, frankly, godlessness. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of godlessness in secular progressivism, as there is a lot of godlessness in ruthless um, uh, like ruthless, like laissez-faire kind of capitalism. The idea that like the best will survive and I'm among the best. And so let me be rich. And there's a, a certain kind of heartless um, that tends to have crony capitalism. In fact, bo- well, both of them t- tend to lead to crony capitalism just in different ways. And those are terrible injustices. So I, and, and this is interesting because Jesus did the same thing, right? In the new Testament, the progressives are the Sadducees. Right, they they own the situation of power. They've liberalized to connect with the knowledge coming in from the outside, which is Roman. You know, they they've instantiated their places. They own the high culture. They sometimes pretend that they're like the people, but they're really not like them. And Jesus looks at the the Sadducees and says, "You people are terrible." Right, and the Pharisees are like fundamentalist religious people. Right, they're kind of like you know, and Jesus attacks the Pharisees too. So you could imagine that the church could be speaking truth to power both in the most Christian version of the BLM movement for um, incumbency reform and in the best version of the conservative or Republican movement against progressivist supremacy, right? And that both could be Christian and both are going to get squashed and attacked by people who hate them. Yeah. Um, I think that's possible. It's just very difficult to know who's doing the Lord's work in these things. And so we just, we have to be as discerning as we can be. But sometimes I think when people tell me I don't speak out enough politically, sometimes I think they're right. Because I get the emails from the leftist churches, mm-hmm. from the super liberal churches. They make all kinds of political prognostications all the time, constantly. And I think maybe I should do that too. But then I look at the prognostications that the Wisconsin Council of Churches and people like that make, and they seem so transparently self-serving and captured by political ideology that I don't recognize them as very Christian. And I don't want to be like that. So maybe I don't want to be more like them. So I have tried to hold back and just be very careful, you know? So I feel like I have made some public, I mean, I just made some public kind of, kind of public political statements just now. Um, but I, I also try to be no respecter of persons. I don't want to be possessed by either group. I want to see what's good about each view. I want to know what's bad and possessing about each view. And um, I think that's critically important. Okay. Last question for the night. How do we participate in policy? I.e. who to support for office, who to vote for, when all sides are exhibiting division? I think some of our best opportunities can sometimes be in the primaries. When you have a choice between people inside of a party. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, um, in the uh, in the primaries this year in Wisconsin, I voted all Democrat because that's what all the primaries were. That's where all the choices were. 
So even so, if I I might have wanted to vote Republican had I had to choose between the parties, but because I was voting in the primaries, I was I was primary voting, so I was voting within the Democratic Party. And so when I did my research, I tried to find the least extreme, most competent person for public office. And when I tried to do that, it seemed very obvious to me. Like there were a bunch of people who had no experience, who were super radical, and appeared to just be like doing this so that they could be like. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and be as like divisive as possible, as young as possible. And then there was like another woman who like had actually written legislation for like business people that actually helped them do things to clarify the law. And like she had done boring stuff that helped people live their lives. And I was like, that's who I want mm. right there. So I felt like in that case, by by looking for people who did something. So I, I didn't look at their rhetoric. I looked, I looked at their record too. So I saw in their rhetoric, some people were more divisive than others, but then I looked at their record and I saw that some of their actions were more divisive than others. And I picked the most constructive, less at least divisive, competent person I could. Yeah. Um, uh, beyond that, you have to start getting involved in politics, frankly, in parties on the local level to try to get better candidates, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. One of the dif- one of the difficulties we have is because everything is such a freak show right now is decent people don't want to run for office. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the reasons why um, why Mitt Romney and I think on a certain extent I think I would say Barack Obama. And Barack Obama said some things that were pretty divisive, but for the most part, I think he tried to carry himself um, relatively um, up in a relatively upstanding way. Right. I, I think that he he was out there on the left in terms of his political policies and certainly um, appointed very, very progressivist judges. But uh, there was some civility to his manner, which I think people really appreciated, you know? And, and I think that was, that was true for like Mitt Romney as well. And the Bushes did that too, whether you like them or not, they carried themselves with certain dignity and demeanor. Right. Um, And both parties, definitely president Trump and definitely president Clinton both led pretty undignified presidencies and and they tended to be lashed out and be defensive when people tried to hold them to account. And so um, I do think that you can make choices. Yeah, they're terrible ones, but remember, I mean, the fact that human beings need government is already a failure, right? Like, like we shouldn't right. need a government. We should be able to just do what's right and we can't. And so government's always going to be a mess. Um, but it's also, it can be good. It, a grace of God. It's better than the alternative. And so we do the best we can, mm-hmm. you know, Yeah. but it's, I think it's also why, um, you know, progressives, progressives believe in smart government and conservatives believe in limited government. And I think you can do both. I think you can try to have like really smart government where you have government, but also recognize that more government is less freedom and it, and it takes away our rights to do the things that we should be doing for ourselves. Yeah. And I think you can believe in both of those things. Yeah. So, and and, and there are candidates that do. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you everyone for asking these questions. Thanks for um, taking time to answer them, Nick. And um, yeah, I, I I think that something I've just been thinking about, and this, even since you said it at the top of this, is just that there, there are going to be so many questions like this that come up and we're not always going to get to hear your thoughts on them or another pastor's thoughts on them or anybody else's thoughts on them. But we do all have the ability to access the wisdom that God wants to give us. And um, mm-hmm. we don't yeah. we want people to hear your answer and that's it. Like we want people to grow in their wisdom and in their personal devotion and in and their ability to discern those moments and having teachers is helpful and a benefit. And a, one of the ways that God gives us that, but 
Yeah, I I think I to say one last thing for all for the two people that have stuck with us for an hour and a half and are still listening is um, the Bible says that the word of God, the wisdom of God, makes the simple wise. That is the like the not very sophisticated person. It makes them wise. It's sophisticated enough to do things that are that are smart, so to speak, right? And if you study God's word and you try to understand what He's really saying and you try to figure out how life really works on the basis of it and you're curious about it, even if you're not the sharpest knife in the drawer, even if you don't have the best education or whatever, mm-hmm. you will develop an intuitional horse sense mm-hmm. where you'll like smell things when they're off. You'll just like know they're off yeah. or you'll have a sense of what's right and it'll be pretty keen Yeah, and it, it's, it'll be remarkable. And sometimes you will be able to discern the good when scholars can't. Right. And it is a gift given by the spirit in the gift of wisdom if we attend to the God's word. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've seen it. I've seen it a lot of times. Like when I pressed in the South, I knew I knew some people that like thought they were super smart from the Bible, but they weren't. They were just legalistic. But the people who had really struggled with the word of God and thought about it for their own lives and really sought to know God. Yeah. And they had a wisdom that yeah. you just there's you can't get anywhere but that, but that. Mm-hmm. You know? That's great. Yep. Great. All right, guys, we'll see you next time. Thanks everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.